Hey, everybody, welcome. Uh, guess what? It is almost time to go back to school, right? Uh, whatever that means in 2020 for uh, some of us doesn't change much. Uh, back to school may be at home, maybe physical, whatever, but it's back to school time. It's August, so it's, it's here. And uh, what happens when we go back to school? Uh, well, we might get some new clothes and stuff like that, but we also have homework and we also have tests, right? Uh, I decided since it's back to school time that I want to give you all a quiz today. Uh, you won't get much of this right probably if you weren't here last week, but I uh, want to give you a quiz on what we talked about last week. So I think we've got just uh, two questions here. I want you to do this in the comments here on question number one, okay? What were the O words that we talked about last week uh, in describing the church? I gave you several O words. Just comment right there on your computer or phone or whatever if you can remember one, two, three maybe of those O words, okay? Uh, don't cheat and look back at your notes, but see if you can do that. We should have some Jeopardy music in here maybe, but you're taking the quiz. Okay, I'm going to now give you an easier question, and that is question number two is going to be multiple choice, okay? So you have to choose from these uh, five here, okay? The biblical church can be described as an organism, an organization, orthodox, practicing ordinances, or finally optional. What's, uh, what's a correct answer there? Or is it answers? You're right, it's answers. It's multiple, but it is not uh, optional. Okay, that's a common thought. Uh, something we talked about a little bit last week. I mean, many people just say, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I don't care for the church. So it's just kind of optional. Um, but we talked last week about how the church is both an organism and an organization. It practices these ordinances and maintains orthodoxy, okay? So uh, a final question for today. Uh, as we're studying the book of Acts, this narrative literature is the book, the events in the book of Acts, are they descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive or prescriptive? Well, it's a difficult question, or it's a tricky one, kind of, because uh, certainly they're descriptive. They're telling us what happened. But that, does that mean that they're always prescriptive? And we said sometimes they are, but sometimes they aren't. The church in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Holy Spirit came kind of at 9 a.m. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit comes at 9 a.m. and we should all have our church services at 9 a.m.? Well, we're, you know, an hour and a half, two hours late here, aren't we? Uh, so we have this challenge, especially in the book of Acts, of what is just descriptive and what is prescriptive. We should follow that model, follow that exact example. I talked last week about how uh, God has given us three institutions, three God-given institutions. First of all, marriage. Second of all, government. And then thirdly, this thing called the church. And um, we talked about how all three of those are kind of in trouble uh, and we have a tendency to be um, a little bit jaded, or certainly uh, our culture can be a little bit jaded about all three. I admit uh, I'm a little jaded about government and politics. I'll admit it, I am. Um, 
marriage is on the rocks. It's being redefined, uh, relegated, seen as uh, unimportant or optional. And certainly the church uh, is often criticized, oftentimes rightly, and for many people it's just unnecessary and again, optional. Kevin DeYoung has uh, written a Mad Lib that uh, says the, the, compl- the complaints about the church are so kind of common that you can write a Mad Lib about it. So here's the Mad Lib that you can fill in the blanks, okay? The institutional church is so pejorative adjective. When I go to church, I feel completely negative emotion. The leadership is totally adjective you would use to describe Richard Nixon, and the people are, noun that starts with un. The services are adjective you might use to describe going to the dentist. The music is adjective you would use to describe the singing on Barney. And the whole congregation is choose among passive, comatose, hypocritical, or Rush Limbaugh Republicans. The whole thing makes me medical term. (laughs) It goes on, but I'll stop there. Uh, Humorous, but uh, the way a lot of people think about church and maybe the way you think about church. And certainly I've had my experience, bad experiences in the life of the church. Nevertheless, these God-given institutions are not to be overthrown, but are to be reformed and are to be valued, marriage and government, and this God-given institution called the church. God loves his church, and uh, we said last week that it's his body, it's his bride. Another way to illustrate that is in Acts chapter 9, as as Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, God speaks to him, and, and, and Saul, at that point he's called Saul, has been persecuting the church. And so the Lord speaks to him and and says, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now think about that for just a second. Has Saul been persecuting God? Well, we find out earlier that Saul's been going house to house and and persecuting Christians. He's, He's been trying to stop the church. But as God speaks to Saul, he says, you're persecuting not just the church, but me. Because, see, Christ formed this church. He's the head of the church, and we are his body. So when the church is persecuted, the body is persecuted, it's a persecution against the head. When the body is relegated, uh, so is the head. Jesus loves the church. We're going to continue to look at this first church in Jerusalem today, and and we're going to be in this passage for a few more weeks. But today I want to focus our attention uh, on the last kind of 11 verses here. So if you've got a Bible, this will be on the the screen also. But open uh, again with me to Acts chapter 2, and I want to uh, just take our attention uh, beginning at verse 40 and going on through verse 47, okay? Verse 40 through 47. It says this, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you compare uh, the ways that our churches are typically described uh, with some of the adjectives and pejorative uh, comments that we talked about earlier from the Mad Lib, and you compare it to this beautiful, wonderful picture of Acts 2, it's quite a contrast. It's quite a contrast. But this first church uh, was not perfect, But we see here in their example some wonderful things about what the church should be, uh, how we should follow the pattern of the first things of the first church, what they prioritized, how they lived, and how they uh, loved one another. And so we see, I want to pull out four kind of uh, principles, four things that they were active in doing in that uh, first church. Okay, so... We're going to see today that the Jerusalem church, uh, they were devoted to learning, to loving, to worshiping, and to witnessing, okay? Those four things, that's where we're going. So first of all, they were uh, devoted to learning. And we see that, uh, first of all, in verse 42, where it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, or some translations uh, say doctrine, but it's the same idea. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching teaching. And you see that this whole story has just come on the heels of of Peter uh, delivering the sermon, of giving them the word, sharing the gospel with them. And that his sermon begins uh, in verse 14, and it continues on uh, through verse 36. But there's something interesting uh, if you look at verse 11 as it starts. It says, uh, as he begins this sermon, it says, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. It says Peter's preaching, but he's standing there with the 11. It's like the apostles, Peter's the one primarily preaching, but the apostles are there together. And and then it says that these people were devoted to the apostles' teaching. These first disciples of Jesus, they wanted to continue what Jesus had taught them. So the church uh, was receiving the teaching of Jesus through these apostles, The same is true for us today. We want to be true to what the apostles have handed down. Peter, as he goes through this first sermon at Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, um, his, his sermon, he's using the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, what's happening here has been prophesied in Joel. And then later on in the message, he, he quotes David. And he says, hey, David was not the one that was truly anticipated. He's not the true king, but he actually spoke of the Messiah to come. So as Peter preaches, he's, he's pointing these people to the word, the Old Testament in this case. 
Because followers of God and followers of Jesus are to be devoted to learning, to learning the scriptures, the apostles' doctrine. I shared a verse last week uh, in chapter 17 of Acts, and it was a compliment paid to a group of people known as the Bereans. They lived in Berea, and it says that uh, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were looking at the scriptures. They were investigating uh, this message, this message that came through Jesus, through the apostles. When we uh, read the Nicene Creed or when we say the Nicene Creed, there's a, there's a line in there that says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. A lot of people get hung up or confused about that Catholic part of it. That word Catholic just means universal or worldwide. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church there, but it's talking about the universal church. So uh, the Nicene Creed confesses that the church is one, no matter where the church is, what continent, what age, the, the, the church is unified. The church is holy, it's set apart, it's universal, worldwide. But then it also has this apostolic, meaning that the true church receives the teaching that's been handed down from the apostles. If what we teach is not in line with what the apostles taught in the New Testament times, then we're not an apostolic church. We're following the teaching of the apostles. We are learning people. We are word-based people. And we know that. And I, I think many people experience that at Centennial Church. Acts chapter 2 is word-centered. It's also spirit-centered. The first 13 verses of this chapter talk about the Holy Spirit coming on. So in this chapter, we have a, a, a beautiful church that's both word-centered, focused upon the apostles' doctrine, and animated by the Spirit of God not shying away from the supernatural or what the Spirit wanted to do miraculously, but also not neglecting the objective word of God. It is common to see these two aspects of the church pitted against each other. Hey, are you a spirit church or a word church? Acts chapter two shows us a church that's both, both animated by the Spirit, but anchored in the apostolic teaching a learning church. Secondly, we see here in uh, these verses that the church is not just learning, uh, they're not just students, but they're brothers and sisters. They're loving one another. They are a fellowship in Acts chapter, or excuse me, verse 42 goes on from the apostles' doctrine to say the fellowship, the Greek word there, koinonia, this, this common union, this fellowship of people that had a lot of things uh, distinctly different or not in common, but they come together here at Pentecost in this, in this new church because of their relationship to Jesus and their, their faith in Jesus. And you see these beautiful descriptions of their fellowship, their community together. To quote uh, Kevin DeYoung again in a blog recently, I thought this was really profound. He says, as, as a people, we are growing more and more polarized, politicized and digitized. Isn't that true? 
polarized, divided, politicized. Everything is debated and digitized. We're growing isolated, as I said last week, and privatized in our life. And all these things work against what God wants to do in his church. And the church here is an alternative community. It's, a, it's different from the world around it in Jerusalem and the way they love one another and the, the way they share things. Look in verse uh, 44, 44 through 46 again. It says, and all who believed were together, underline that word together, and had all things in common. Wow, is that descriptive or prescriptive? We won't talk about that right now, but they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There there were not poor among them uh, because they were sharing with one another. They were helping one another. It's the kind of unity and fellowship and love they had. And look at verse 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice again in verse 46, that word together. Underline that word together. They were together. They were sharing. They were uh, unified and radically different from the world around them because of Jesus. John Chrysostom is uh, one of the most famous preachers of the early church age in about the fourth century and Uh, As he was preaching this text, John Chrysostom said that in this fellowship, the poor knew no shame and the rich knew no haughtiness. People from different backgrounds, different incomes, living together and loving one another. Our world needs to see that. We need to be that. Nowhere in this passage is the emphasis on attending church, coming to a service. It's way more than that. It's not less than that, but it's way more than that. What a beautiful picture here of an alternative community where differences are put aside and people are brought together. It takes time. You notice there in verse 46, that it says that they were doing these things day by day. Day by day. That phrase is going to come up again in verse 47 here in a second. But not only were they a learning group and a loving group, they weren't just focused uh, inward. They weren't just focused upon teaching or just being kind of this fun, holy huddle, inward focused. But they were also a worshiping people. And so in verse 42, again, we see after apostles' teaching and fellowship, and we're going to look at verse 42 in more detail in the the weeks to come, but here in verse 42, we begin to see the worshiping again because it says they were breaking bread. That's a phrase that means holy communion, the Lord's table. They were breaking bread, that's worship, and they were devoted to the prayers. They were praying together. They had this wonderful fellowship, but the fellowship was centered upon God's word and upon worshiping, praising that God that they had come to know. We also see worship uh, alluded to in verse 43. 
Look at verse 43. It says, it describes how awe came upon every soul. There's a little footnote in my Bible that says fear. They were in awe. There was a fear and an a awe among them about what God was doing and, and the God that they were praising and even supernatural things were happening. Wonders, signs. And they were praising God. It says in verse 46 that in some ways they uh, continued to go to the temple, the Jewish temple, and they would probably still participate in the, the daily prayers there three times a day, praying at the temple as they did some of them as good Jews. Now they do as Christians, as believers in Jesus. They go to the temple, verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together. Verse 46, you see both the relationship together as well as the frequency again, day by day. Their worship wasn't one day a week, it was daily. What's that mean? Is that prescriptive or descriptive? Should we worship together daily? Should we have a service daily? Well, we can't even have a service one day a week where we gather together right now. I don't know if this is descriptive or prescriptive, but here's what I, here's what I know. Elsewhere in the scriptures, this kind of fellowship is described as well. And the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling together of the saints for worship and for study, and for love for one another. Verse 47 gives us another word for their worship. Verse 47 says, praising God. Their worship was praise. And from elsewhere, we know that their worship was praise through song. Two other things I want you to notice here in this little section about worship is, uh, you notice there's both a big group and a small group. Uh, this is the first megachurch in history. 3,000 people added that day as a megachurch. But not only was it big, it was also small because you see they're meeting in homes. They're sharing meals with one another. They're inviting, hey, come to my place. Generous and joyful and full of awe. Not only is there this big group as well as small group, you could say, um, there's also the formal and the organized or the informal and the organic. So you see that they're going to the temple at these set times probably, the, the formal or the organized. But they're, again, as I said, they're also meeting in homes, the organic or the informal. It's not just loosey-goosey, let's all worship at our own homes, but it's also not just coming together in a big corporate body to worship. There's order, and organization, and there's also an, an organic relationship and an organic sharing of life together. You know, I uh, talk to a lot of people, and uh, even in recent weeks and months, this is probably uh, only exasperated because of COVID, but people are lonely. They don't have good friends that they can talk about real things with. We have a pandemic called COVID. We also have an epidemic called loneliness. And even in this area, even in our church, I talk to people frequently. They're like, I, I'm just not connected with other people. I, I feel lonely. They, they look 
like they'd be the most popular person in the group. And yet when it comes to talk about real life, they come talk to their pastor because they're not connected deeply the way they want to be. I was talking to another friend and uh, we were both talking just about when we've had those groups of other men that share Jesus together and you're sharing coffee or you're sharing a meal together and how if one guy kind of breaks through the surface and begins to say, hey man, I'm really struggling in my marriage or I'm really dealing with this habit that's really taking me down a bad path. It breaks the ice so that men can care for one another. But guess what? Someone has to break the ice. But if someone breaks the ice, we all want that. We want to be connected to God and we want to be connected deeply with other people. I want that. I believe you want that. We don't ultimately want to be digitized or isolated. God made us to connect and the church ought to be the place of connection where we can accept those that are different from us, love those who are like us and different from us, confess our sins to one another, share our stuff, invite others into our homes and hospitality and joy. And the world needs to see us do that, Centennial Church. The world needs to know that there's a place unlike the world. In fact, you see in verse 40, the reason I started in verse 40 is because as, as Peter ends this message, uh, he says, he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Well, he could come and our context and say the same thing. Save yourselves from this crooked, warped generation and culture. Not everything's bad about it. But the church is to be an alternative community to a crooked and warped world. We're not perfect, but we're supposed to be a holy people set apart. So, inward upward, but also outward. Because look uh, again at verse 47, where it shows the impact that they were having on this crooked generation, this world around them. Verse 47 says they were praising God and having favor with all the people because of this alternative community. And the Lord added to their number Day by day, there's that phrase again. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. They were witnessing through their community and even through their worship. And the Lord, the Lord was doing this. The Lord was adding to their number daily. People were getting saved. This was happening again, formally and informally as people spectated what they saw the church doing and as they went to their families and neighbors and shared the gospel, the Lord added to their number day by day. Now, this isn't, uh, if you were just to read verse 47, you think, you know, if the church is really doing its job, people will be drawn in. That's true. Again, that's one part of the truth. 
But if you go on to chapter four, you see that they also begin to meet opposition. And if we're really being the church, if we're really being true to Jesus, both of those things are gonna be true. People are gonna be drawn to us, but people are also sometimes gonna be repelled by us. They're gonna be opposed to us. Well, some people love to be liked, so you like that part. And some people kind of love to be opposed. I'm being righteous. The world hates me, therefore I must be, well, you could just be being a jerk. But there are times when the world is gonna see us and be drawn in and there's gonna be times when the world sees us and they're repelled. Um, Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian uh, guy a generation ago and uh, he was an apologist. He was a defender of the faith and he had a ministry in Switzerland where uh, he would just invite secular people and they would come and talk about uh, life's big questions and, and he would present kind of the Christian worldview to them. And it was very uh, influential and, and impactful in his ministry, Francis Schaeffer. And again, he's a defender of the faith. He's an apologist. But Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, the ultimate apologetic is love. The the best way that this post-Christian world, this secular, spiritual, but, you know, not religious or religious, but not um, for the church, the the best way we're going to get their attention is by being a people of love together and toward the world. I want to wrap this up uh, by asking us two questions for application. I think we all want to be this kind of church. We want to have these types of relationships. But I want to ask you, first of all, are you too busy to be the church? Are you too busy to be the church? You see how they were, it was day by day. It wasn't just attending a service, but they were, it was way more than that. I think one of the real struggles and challenges of our area and our time is our incessant busyness. And busyness kills and stunts relationships. We've got to have time. We've got to have margin in our lives for our church, for our brothers and sisters, for our neighbors. So look at your look at your calendar. Are you too busy really to be the church? As I said last week, some, some of us have got kids in every single sport and we've got all these different activities and hobbies or w- whatever. And the first thing to go is our relationship with our church. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Are you too busy to be the church? Second application I want to ask, question I want to ask is, are you too independent to be the church. Again, to go deep with people, you got to be a little bit vulnerable. You got to show up. You got to share. And some of us kind of want to hide, kind of want to be independent. Hey, I've got it together. I'm self-sufficient. Don't need people. That also impedes community and fellowship. 
something I think we all want. So are you too busy? Are you too independent? Man, this is a challenging picture of the church. Idealistic, maybe, but beautiful. If we could really practice this. We can't neglect the church. God loves the church. I love this line from a group called Cademan's Call years ago. It says, you cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. It's his body. It's his bride. I want to give you a moment as Garrett plays just to go before the Lord and talk, confess, do business, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this moment, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us, great God, holy God, sacrificing God for for our love being too little for you. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, forgive us for loving your church too little, for prioritizing other things in our lives, our loyalty to other groups, to other priorities, Lord. Would you help us as a church body to be an an alternative community to the world? Would you help us to not be isolated, but to be connected, to be together, to share, to be people of the word, to be people that learn and, and love one another and worship you and witness for you, God? Would you help us to live up to this high calling? bring honor and glory to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.